this evening we're going to mostly focus on some introductory stuff, <laughs> but it's important for the chapter, okay? And um, as I just said in our study in the book of Revelation, we're going to, we will be entering into chapter 17 tonight. Just so you know uh, and understand that both chapters 17 and 18 deal with Babylon. Chapter 17 deals with ecclesiastical or religious Babylon. And then chapter 18 deals with commercial Babylon. Now, author March, uh, Mark Hitchcock, who wrote a great little commentary on Revelation, uh, had this to say about Babylon. And I'd like to read it to you to open our uh, study this evening. He said, and I quote, Many people would probably be surprised to know that the most prominent subject in Revelation based on the number of verses devoted to it is Babylon. Revelation contains 404 verses, and 44 of those verses, or roughly 11% of the book, deals with Babylon. Babylon first surfaces in Genesis chapters 10 and 11, just after the flood, as the place of man's first post-flood organized rebellion against God. It was apparently the first city built after the flood, it was founded and ruled over by the world's first dictator, a man by the name of Nimrod. It was also the location of the famed Tower of Babel. From its inception, Babylon was both a literal city and the wicked false religious system that emanated from it. It's pictured as mankind's city in the sense that fallen man, that's, they relate to Babylon, okay? Um, and it is the second most mentioned city in the Bible, appearing about 290 times. Jerusalem holds the title of most mentioned city in the Bible at about 800 times, end quote. Now, guys, uh, if you've been coming to the study or following it, you remember how that in Revelation chapter 14, verse 8, and chapter 16, verse 19, uh, has already declared Babylon's fall in a kind of an overview form. But now in chapters 17 and 18, that fall, the fall of Babylon, is, Babylon is carefully detailed. And, uh, you know, just so you know, there are six primary chapters. Uh, I'm sorry, there are six primary, um, yeah, I'm sorry, six primary chapters in the Bible that deal with Babylon, Isaiah 13 and 14. Jeremiah 50 and 51, and now Revelation 17 and 18. Here's a little assignment for the week. Um, get a little time one day, and uh, you want to read all six chapters um, in one sitting. In one sitting. Uh, it, Babylon's a pretty important subject. And so we should at least look at these six chapters. Again, Isaiah 13 and 14, Jeremiah 50 and 51, and now Revelation 17 and 18. And uh, just read them over in one sitting to see what God has to say about Babylon. Uh, these are not the only passages in the Bible that deal with Babylon, but they're the main ones. They're the main ones. Now, chapters 17 and 18, as we have said before, are inserted by the Holy Spirit into the chronological flow of the book of Revelation. Chapters 17 and 18 are kind of like a parenthesis. They're parenthetical chapters. Uh, the pouring out of the seventh bowl in Revelation 16, verse 17, is actually followed chronologically in time by the return of Jesus Christ to destroy his enemies, 
that have gathered together in the valley of Megiddo to fight against him, Revelation 19, verse 11. Uh, you remember how that near the end of Revelation 16, God spoke of the destruction of Babylon. Let me read to you verse 19 of Revelation 16. Now, the great city was divided into three parts. That's because of a great earthquake. Jerusalem was divided into three parts. And the cities of the nations fell. And great Babylon was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. So guys, chapters 17 and 18 become the last parenthesis in the book of Revelation. Remember, the first was chapter 7. Then we had a long parenthesis in chapters 10 to 14. And now chapters 17 and 18 become the last parenthesis in the book, which gives us a more detailed look at the world system led by Satan, Antichrist, and false prophet before recording its destruction. All right. Now, as I just said, chapter 17 gives us a look at the religious aspects of Babylon the Great, and chapter 18 zeroes in on the commercial aspects of this final world empire. Because, guys, false religion is so much a part of this fallen world, well, it should be no surprise that it will play a major role in the end times, especially when it comes to establishing the final world governing empire. And we'll see why in just a second. In fact, I want to read you something that tells us why, okay? One author put it this way. He said, and I quote, that ultimate expression of false religion will be an essential element of Antichrist's final world empire in holding together his military, economic, and political structure. Only religion can unite the world in the most compelling way. Politics, economics, even military force are unable to overcome the world's cultural diversity. Only religion with its appeal to the supernatural can transcend the physical, geographical, historical, economic, and cultural barriers to world unity, unquote. Keep that in mind. That's going to be really at the heart of these chapters that we're going to be studying, chapters 17 and 18. Now, Let's read the first six verses of Revelation 17, and we'll go back and make some introductory comments. So, verse 1, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and talked with me, saying to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me, at a, carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, which was full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. And on her forehead a name was written, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I marveled with great amazement. Now, as we come to chapter 17, the very first thing we are introduced to is a woman riding on a scarlet beast. Just who she is has been a matter of speculation and debate for centuries. Let's see if we 
if we can gather some clues from the text that might help us determine who this woman is or more specifically what she represents. I'll give you ten of them, okay? First of all, she is called a harlot, a harlot who led the nations into spiritual fornication. Or in other words, who led the nations of the world into spiritual unfaithfulness to the true and living God. Now guys, this is important. It's an important clue because it describes somebody, listen, who was unfaithful to God while presenting themselves as being faithful to God. In other words, a person can't be unfaithful to somebody unless they have made a commitment to them in some way, unless they're engaged to them or married to them, something along those lines. You can't be unfaithful to somebody if you haven't pledged faithfulness in some way. And again, I'm thinking of engaging, being engaged to somebody or being married to them. That would be the two that come. Uh, there's probably others, but that's the idea, okay, uh, here. And um, Ray Stedman, a uh, very good uh, commentator, he said, and I quote, The symbolism of spiritual adultery is not ordinarily used of heathen nations who do not know God, but always of people who outwardly carry the name of God while actually worshiping and serving other gods. The concept of spiritual adultery is frequently used in describing the apostasy of Israel. And then he mentions Ezekiel, Ezekiel chapter 16 and 23 and the whole book of Hosea. Well, you remember at Sinai, when God led his people out of Egypt, right? He brought them to the base of Sinai, and then he, there he entered into a covenant with them. He first of all said uh, to, uh, to the people, uh, if you want to be my people, I want to enter into a covenant with you, where you're going to be my people, my special treasure, above all the nations and peoples on the face of the earth. Uh, there are some terms to the covenant if you decide you want to be my people. And in other places, God actually said he married Israel. Uh, he called them the adulterous wife of Jehovah. This was a covenant of marriage. And they said, sure, that sounds great. Uh, we, want to, you know, we want to make a covenant with you, Lord. And so they said, well, then Moses, come, on, come up on top to, of the mount, and I will give you the terms of the covenant. We think of the Ten Commandments. It was bigger than that. It was the law. Okay. So they were now married to God. Uh, Israel belonged to him in a very special way. They were his wife, his bride in the old covenant. Now, here's what he warned them about when they came into the land. In fact, why don't you turn to Exodus chapter 34? Because the language here dovetails with what we're studying in Revelation 17. It's the idea of God making a covenant with people and them thinking they're keeping the covenant but in reality they're not they're not exodus 34 starting with verse 12 the lord said take heed to yourself lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land where you are going lest it be a snare in your midst but you shall destroy their altars, break their sacred pillars, and cut down their wooden images. For you shall worship no other god, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and they play the harlot with their gods and make sacrifice to their gods, and one of them invites you to eat 
of his sacrifice, and you take of his daughters for your sons, and his daughters play the harlot with their gods, and make your sons play the harlot with their gods, and so on. You can read the whole passage where God is basically saying, when you come into the land, remember now, I am dispossessing the Canaanites. All those who were steeped in idolatry, and of course it included child sacrifice, different horrendous practices, right? Orgy, sexual orgies, which were designed as a form of worship to these pagan deities. God says, I want none of that for you. You're my people. I've entered into a covenant with you. And when you go into the land, you've got to cleanse out all this, uh, all this pagan worship stuff, you know? And don't make any, don't marry their, their, marry your sons to their daughters and vice versa because um, the people will corrupt your hearts and turn you away from me, right? So first of all, this woman riding this beast, whoever she is, she is called a harlot who led the nations into spiritual unfaithfulness to the true and living God. Number two, her influence reaches around the world. Now we're just piecing together. Uh, some clues from the passage whereby we're trying to identify who this woman, woman is or what she represents. Number two, her influence reaches around the world. Whatever she is, guys, she's not local, she's global. She's not local, she's global. She's not a little insignificant deal. She is pretty important to the people of the world. Number three, don't confuse the woman with the beast she rides. Don't confuse the woman. And some commentators do, and many Christians do. Uh, they, they read the passage too quickly, or they're not really uh, strict in their interpretations of certain passages, and so they mix things up and they get it wrong. If you ha have the wrong interpretation, you're always going to have the wrong application. That's why interpretation is so important. Read the text, look at the context, right? Make sure you understand exactly what's being said, who it's being spoken to, what the person or what the Lord is saying, and then after you get the right interpretation, then you can make application. But it's, it all comes down to context and how you're studying the passage. So a lot of folks confuse the woman with the beast she rides. They are separate. Guys, she is seated on the beast, which means she is steering and controlling the beast much like a rider on a horse would dominate, control, and steer that horse in a given direction. Here's the thing we need to understand, and we'll bring this out more as we progress into the chapter. But I want to throw this out for these are introductory thoughts, okay? Here's the thing we must understand. In the beginning, she rides and controls the beast. Looks like she's in charge, but only for a little while. Only for a little while. Initially, the beast, and let me just say this. Sometimes in the book of Revelation, where the word beast appears, sometimes it's talking about the Antichrist. Sometimes it's talking about his world empire. And sometimes both are in view, because they're kind of inextricably linked together. It's like trying to talk about Hitler apart from the Third Reich. They're, 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 they're one, okay? Okay. Right here, though, the, in, in this introductory thought that's introduced here, what's in view is the, his world empire, which he's not in charge of yet, all right? He rises to 
power and, and uh, somehow works out a treaty between uh, the nations of the earth. And by that I mean there is ten regions uh, that the earth is divided into that become one, a one world government. These ten regions are led by ten kings or ten presidents or ten uh, prime ministers, whatever the world's going to call them, right? They are ten leaders. Now, when they coalesce in the beginning, all right, uh, the Antichrist is facilitating, but he's kind of like an ambassador, all right? He's bringing, you know, diplomacy. He's very good, going to be very good at this. He's bringing people together, right? As of the beginning of this world empire, he's not really in charge yet. And so what happens is the kingdoms of this world, as they have come together, ten regions, right? As they have come together to form this fledgling new one world government, they need religion. They need her because she's going to help solidify their power. Remember what we just read, the one author said? That you can't bring the diversity of all these cultures and nations around the world, you can't bring them together in a way that's going to be uh, very cohesive and, and strong if you don't introduce, and the devil knows this, if you don't introduce religion into the equation. That, that religion is the strongest thing that motivates somebody to do something. The strongest zeal in the world is religious zeal, more than political zeal, more than any other kind of zeal. The strongest zeal in the world is religious zeal. If you think you're working for God, and you know what? No stopping you. You know It'll cause people to strap bombs to themselves and blow themselves up in the crowded marketplaces. Religion has a way of really... It's so it, 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 it gets into our heart to the point where when we feel we're serving God, and not everybody is serving the true God, but they think they are, um, it really is a powerful motivator and a powerful um, glue that binds, is going to bind the nations of the world together, okay? Um, but so initially, this very young one-world government um, it seems, to, it seems to tolerate or even to partner with her. And by her, again, I mean the religious harlot or the world church, right, which is really the ecclesiastical or religious Babylon that chapter 17 is focusing on. 18 will deal with commercial uh, aspects of Babylon. But in the very first part of the tribulation period, now this is the first three and a half years, initially the this world government um, needs her. It's, it's kind of like, um, and then, let me just put it this way. Um, they need her because they need, they need people who are religious all coming together to make this thing work, right? Um, after the power of this global government is solidified, they turn on her, destroy her, and replace her with the Antichrist as their global leader, they don't need her anymore. Much like if you've ever studied the history of World War II, Hitler needed the church in Germany initially. Okay, He acted like a Christian. He used Christian terminology. He had a lot of clergy convinced he was one of them, in a sense, that he was a religious man who only wanted what was good for Germany, and so on. After he got strong enough, though, and his, his power was consolidated, he didn't need the church anymore. He outlawed it and established his own church called the Reich Church, where he was now the leader. 
This is exactly what's going to happen in the end times, right? Uh, this one, these 10 kings, 10 presidents of this world government uh, are going to need religion to help them solidify their power. When their power is really solidified, then they turn on her, wipe her out, replace her with the Antichrist, who's always been in the wings, probably feeding them uh, you know, information and, and, uh, and advice and things. They, he, they finally say, now we, we want this guy to take over, right? And, um, and then he outlaws religion, as we would think of it, to establish his own religion. Let me, I'm getting ahead of myself. We read about this, um, where the world empire, the final world government, um, is, uh, t- turns on her. Look at uh, chapter 17, verses 16 and 17. Verse 16, and the ten horns which you saw on the beast, let me stop there, those represent the ten leaders of the ten world regions that have come together to make up one, the final one world government. So these ten horns which you saw on the beast, at one point, these will hate the harlot, make her desolate and naked, eat her flesh and burn her with fire. So the honeymoon's over, Okay. <laughs> Verse 17, for God has put it into their hearts to fulfill his purpose, to be of one mind and to give their kingdom to the beast. That would be now the Antichrist in view there, until the words of God are fulfilled. And so, guys, again, the beast, and now I'm using both the world government and the Antichrist together. Uh, Initially, the beast tolerates, again, and uses this religious harlot during the first half of the tribulation period, again, to gain power for their new world government. Once their power is solidified, they no longer need her. So they turn on her, and again, her is the world church, right, and destroy her, starting at the midpoint of the seven years. So right in the middle, this everything changes, okay? And um, starting in the midpoint, at the midpoint of the tribulation period, they turn on her. And this uh, persecution now begins to... The, bleed into the second half of the tribulation period. Um, And why do they turn on her? Because now they are strong enough to establish the Antichrist, not only as their leader, but giving him the opportunity to start his own religion, where he himself is worshipped as God. And that's what Jesus said when he warned us in Matthew 24, 15, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place. What does that mean? The Antichrist is going to put an image of himself in the holy of holies, going to stop the daily sacrifices uh, and offerings to God, the true God, to cease. He's going to declare himself God. 2 Thessalonians verse uh, chapter 2, verse 4 uh, talks about this also. Let, let me just say this um, so you understand the chronology. Ecclesiastical Babylon is destroyed at the beginning of the last three and a half years of the Great Tribulation. Commercial Babylon is destroyed at the end of the last three and a half years of the Great Tribulation, right before Jesus returns. Okay? Number four. This harlot is dressed in purple, scarlet, gold, and jewels. Now, she represents the world church. Which you can't have, you you can't have unfaithfulness to the true and living God unless there's some kind of a commitment to that God. 
we're talking about some kind of religious system that has a lot of Christian influence involved in it. I'm not saying that they're true Christians, but there is the, this church, whatever it is, has a lot of Christian influence in it. Well, I, I don't want to get ahead of myself, but I just want you to understand the, the, the contrast that I, I believe the Holy Spirit is, is laying out there for us, okay? Um, this world church has got a lot of Christian influence. Uh, it, it's not going to only be uh, Christian influence, but there, there's going to be other religions involved. We'll talk about that in a moment. But um, I want you to understand that if she's leading the world into unfaithfulness, spiritual fornication or unfaithfulness to the true and living God, there has to be a commitment. A lot of folks who are going to Christian churches right now, liberal churches for the most part, they think they know God. They think they're honoring God. But by their doctrines and everything else, they are unfaithful to God. But they call themselves Christians, right? You can't have Buddhists unfaithful to their God and say, well, they're they're, they're unfaithful to the true and living God. They don't believe in the true and living God like we do. That's why there's a strong... If we're going to understand this gal, who she is, we have to understand whoever she is, she has a strong Christian influence uh, to who she is. All right? So this harlot, verse four, uh, number four, this harlot is dressed in purple, scarlet, gold, and jewels. In other words, guys, listen. She is unashamedly wealthy, expensively adorned and outwardly attractive to who the world the world when the world thinks well of us when the world extols us in some way when the world honors the church there's something wrong with the church and when you're living in an age of apostasy where the true church is a small faithful remnant you understand what i'm talking about Whoever this woman is, apparently she is um, she is looked up to by the people of the world. And Jesus said, you know, when all people speak well of you in the world, something's wrong. Because they spoke well of the false prophets who were before you. Okay? So she's very wealthy. She's, again, ashamedly wealthy, uh, expensively adorned, outwardly attractive to the world, okay? Number five, she carries in her hand a golden cup. Again, Revelation 17, verse 4, the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a golden cup, listen, full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. A golden cup is shiny, it's precious, it's beautiful to behold. Something, uh, this was the kind of cup that was used in the Old Testament in the worship of God in the temple. They had different golden implements, shovels and forks, cups, different things. You remember how that, when Babylon conquered Israel, uh, uh, you know, Nebuchadnezzar, well, his grandson uh, at one point in, in Daniel 5, was throwing a big party. And they drunk, and he said, bring some of the cups from the Jews, uh, you know, from their temple in Jerusalem that we conquered. So they brought out all these gold cups. 
Because th- these were the things used in the worship of God in different ways, right? And you remember what happened. As, Nebuchad- as Nebuchadnezzar's grandson was living it up and throwing this big party, suddenly a hand comes up out of the cup, writes on the wall, Miney, miney, tackle you farson. I'll give you the loose translation. Kid, you're not, you're not cutting it, and tonight's your last night. That's a loose translation. You've been waiting the balances and found wanting. This is it. Your day is done. He died that night, by the way. And Babylon fell that night to the Medes and the Persians. Anyways, that's Daniel. You can read that in your own. But these uh, precious golden cups were used in the Old Testament period in the worship of God in the temple. However, guys, a golden cup was not used when Jesus instituted communion. Remember the first time he did that in the upper room the night before the cross? He instituted communion. He didn't use a golden cup uh, because those in the upper room that night were simple fishermen. And a golden goblet was the cup of a king. I like the way the third Indiana Jones movie handled this, right? Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. If you don't know what I'm talking about, don't worry. It's not that important. I'm just, you know, rambling. But the point is, the true church of Jesus Christ, the true church, would never own anything as um, uh, as uh, ornate as this for the worship of the true and living God. Guys, you remember how that God made it a point to warn his people in the Old Covenant not to make their worship so ornate that people started worshiping the worship and neglected God. Remember what God initially said, when you make me an altar out in the field, he said, don't take stones and, and, and inscribe them or engrave them. Don't make them ornate. Use regular field stones and dirt. Just build it up. Because God didn't want the, the, the object that was used in his, the worship of him to become the object in itself. That was the problem with the church throughout the centuries. Churches got more and more ornate, more cathedrals, beautiful things. But then people began to think, well, uh, I have to be in the cathedral to worship God because he lives here. It's so beautiful. And when you got a church like us, which is we're called low church, not low class church, low church, as opposed to high church. What's high church? Liturgical. Very lit- Roman Catholicism, Greek Orthodox, Russian Orthodox. These are high church with all the trappings and the stained glass windows and the statues and the and the paintings and the ceilings. This gives people, if God's not in your church, you got to compensate by giving them people an environment where it feels like God's among you. When you really have the Holy Spirit inside of us as true believers, and we come together inside of a simple room like this, we don't need any ornate trappings. We've got the real thing. It's just God Almighty. But if you don't, if you're a dead church and Many of those cathedrals, you know, sprinkled throughout Europe. and I mean, you know, they were ornate, they were beautiful, but they were empty. They were dead. And this, this was the, God does not want our worship of him to be so ornate that the worship actually comes before it becomes the focus and not the one we are worshiping through the, the things we're using, Right? So my point is the true church would never possess such an ornate, expensive cup for anything. Well, what do we use for communion? Plastic cups? 
rip off the top, and there you go, right? Um, you know, the very opposite of something ornate and expensive. And yet, guys, we see this harlot, who is a church, represents the world church, we see her holding such a golden cup. But this one is filled with abominations. Many commentators associate this golden cup with the golden chalice used by the Roman Catholic Church during the Mass. Now, whenever I teach on the Catholic Church, and I'm, I'm not putting down Catholics, I'm really coming against the Catholic Church. But every time I teach, and it's not a lot, you know, if you've been coming here for a while, uh, every time I teach on the Roman Catholic Church, I have to give my personal background. So, you know, because otherwise people might think I'm one of these crazy, rabid Protestants that was born a Protestant, and I just hate Catholics and hate the Catholic Church. I was born in the Catholic Church, baptized in the Catholic Church, made my Holy Communion second grade in the Catholic Church, my uh, confirmation fourth grade in the Catholic Church, went to Catholic grade school. Cindy went to, was born in the Catholic Church. She went to Catholic high school. We got married in the Catholic Church. We loved the church. We, we, we didn't know any better at the time. We loved the Catholic Church. When God began to tug on our heartstrings to get right with him, and we didn't really know what was happening, but all of a sudden we had this desire to know God. What did we do? We went back to the Roman Catholic Church because that's all we knew. We didn't stay there very long because the Holy Spirit was saying, no, 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 not here. And God led us out into a simple Bible-teaching church, which we eventually became ourselves. So I, I don't want anyone to think that, boy, this guy loves the bash Catholics. He must be a Catholic hater. Absolutely not. I love Catholics. I want to see them saved. I've got a lot of family members, as no doubt many of you, have family members that are, not, that are Catholic and not saved. I am just presenting to you what, and I'm not alone, many, many good commentators over the centuries have believed about who this woman is. Many believe that this golden cup, um, they associate this golden cup, I should say, with the golden chalice used by the Roman Catholic Church during the Mass. Let me give you a little rundown, okay? You've heard me, some of you heard me, have heard me before talk about this. The Roman Catholic Mass is a blasphemous rite that claims that during the Mass, the elements, the bread and the wine, are miraculously transformed into the substance of Christ's body and blood so that they are no longer bread and wine, although they still appear to be, but they are now literally the body and blood of Jesus Christ. This process is referred to in Catholic theology as transubstantiation, which literally means change of substance. Change of substance. After the bread and wine, this is Catholic theology, after the bread and wine are transformed, they believe, into the actual body and blood of Christ at each celebration of the Mass. They are then offered to God as a new sacrifice of Christ for sins. This means in Roman Catholic theology, the priest literally handles Christ's body every Mass, in every church. They literally handle Christ's body, or so they believe, and that the Mass is a constant reenactment of Christ's sacrifice on the cross. They are constantly re-sacrificing Jesus Christ on the cross. Now, 
depending on what Catholic you talk to, they would vehemently deny that. I've heard them say it to me. Uh, no, that's not true. We don't believe that. We don't believe that we're re-offering Christ every Mass, every church. No, we don't believe that. But what is it? It's a bloodless representation. A bloodless representation. In other words, it's a symbolic offering. Okay? But then you dig a little bit into Catholic doctrine from their own catechisms and things. I'll give you one example. According to the compendium of the catechism of the Catholic Church, here's what it says. And I quote, The Eucharist is the very sacrifice of the body and blood of the Lord Jesus, which he instituted to perpetuate the sacrifice of the cross throughout the ages until his return in glory, end quote. So that sounds to me like Catholic doctrine teaches that, no, it's not just a symbolic thing. We actually believe, and of course in Catholic theology, the, the bread and wine are transubstantiated into the literal body and blood of Christ, they believe. What is the point if it's all symbolic? Why are you transforming bread and wine into the literal body and blood of Christ if you're not going to do something with it that is not symbolic, but it's actual? It's actual. I could have swore, and I, maybe you can help me. I could have sworn that when in my Catholic days, at the end of the Mass, the priest, unless they've changed this, because I went online, checked a few Catholic Masses out online, couldn't find this statement. They may have stopped using it because of this very issue. But I'm almost sure I heard at the very end of the Mass, the priest say something to the effect, now let us pray that our sacrifice is pleasing to the Lord, and so on. Because in their minds, they have now re-sacrificed Jesus Christ on Calvary's cross. Guys, in Roman Catholic theology, the Eucharist, which literally means thanksgiving, is efficacious. So we're talking about all symbolic stuff. Catholic theology teaches that the Eucharist is efficacious. What does that mean? It means it has the power to produce a desired effect. What is the desired effect? Salvation. Salvation. The Roman Catholic Church teaches that when Catholics partake of Holy Communion, it earns them, listen, installments of grace. Installments of grace. Which, along with the keeping of other sacraments, accrues. So all these things you do, going to Mass, lighting candles, praying rosaries, all these things you do, uh, are earning you little installments of grace that eventually build up, add up, to the point where you can use them, or automatically they are used, to purchase your salvation. To purchase your salvation. As opposed to... They will purchase salvation for any faithful Catholic who remains in good standing with the church. Let me just add that, okay? In Roman Catholicism, and some of you know this already, but if you, if you do it, do know it, bear with me. In Roman Catholicism, salvation is sacramental. Sacramental, what does that mean? It means it's earned through participation in a sacred ritual or sacred rituals or other sacred practices. You are earning something through sacred practices, sacraments, as opposed to what the Bible actually teaches about salvation, that it is a free gift that we receive through our faith in Christ alone, right? 
Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Um, For by grace you have been saved through faith. That not of yourselves, it's a gift of God. Not the result of good works, no matter how noble they might be, lest any should boast. Salvation is a free gift. We do not earn it. In fact, Galatians tells us if you try to earn it, you divorce yourself from Christ, fall from grace, you'll never get into heaven. You can't add one ounce of grace, of works to 15 billion pounds of, of grace, and you're still disqualified. If, if you try and I try to earn our salvation in the smallest degree, God says you can't have it. It's a free gift. If you think you can earn any of it, you can't have any of it. That's what the Bible teaches, all right? The Eucharist, for those of you who were Roman Catholics, the Eucharist, after having been transformed into Christ's body, as the Catholic Church teaches, is then placed on display in a little standing chamber or holder called a monstrance. A monstrance. You have seen these in Catholic churches. Some of them get pretty ornate. They're like gold and they're like a sunburst, you know, and then they have a little window in the center. And behind it, there's a little opening, and the priest takes the wafer, and he just drops it into, the. and you can see it then on the other side, facing the congregation. You see the, the, the wafer, Christ's body, in this little window, monstrance, and then the faithful come up, and they worship it, because it's Jesus. And they actually worship it um, as they pass by. When Catholics partake of the Eucharist, they believe they are literally consuming the body of Jesus Christ and that by ingesting the Eucharist, or in other words, eating the body of Christ, they believe it brings to them everlasting life. To justify this belief, they point to Jesus' words in John's Gospel, chapter 6. Why don't you turn there? We've looked at it before. I just talked to a Roman Catholic a few uh, few months back. He listens on uh, he listens to our radio show, and he's heard me talk about the Catholic Church before, and he was pretty upset. And so we uh, scheduled a time when we could talk on the phone. You know, it was cordial. We disagreed vehemently on on key issues, but but you know, but he took me to this passage, and I tried to explain to him why it wasn't saying what he thought it was saying, but you know. Um, he was convinced it was saying it. But to justify this belief that by eating the Eucharist, which is now the body of Christ, they are, um, they are, they are uh, eating the body of Christ, which is, which is giving them eternal life. To justify that belief, they point, again, to Jesus' words in John's Gospel, chapter 6, starting with verse 48, where Jesus said in verse 48, I am the bread of life. Skip over to verse 51. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I give for the, for the life of the world is my flesh. And so the Roman Catholic Church takes these words of Jesus literally, literally, as referring to his physical body, even though Jesus went on to say in verse 63, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit, and they are life. I'm not talking about cannibalism. I'm not talking about you literally eating my flesh. 
He said, I'm talking spiritually. The words I speak are spirit and they are life. The flesh profits nothing. Now, guys, we evangelicals believe that the Lord's Supper or communion is a spiritual experience. I mean, no doubt about it. Um, but we don't believe the bread and wine are transubstantiated or turned into the actual body and blood of Christ as Roman Catholics believe. We believe it's a sacred thing. It's Paul even said to the Corinthians, you know, because you're not, you're not participating in communion with the right heart, you're making kind of a mockery of it. God's judged some of you. Some of you have died. Some of you are sick. So it's not like, you know, we, it's something that we need to take seriously. It's a holy thing. But the Catholics take it to a point where they believe that communion is all about ingesting the literal body of, of Christ, which has been transformed through this process. Guys, the belief that Jesus' body needs to be sacrificed again and again for sins is utter blasphemy. And that's really what we're talking about, this woman with the chalice and full of abominations and blasphemies. This is what we're talking about, all right? The belief that Jesus' body needs to be sacrificed again and again for sins is utter blasphemy since the Bible clearly teaches. Let me give you three um, references. You can write these down. Hebrews 10, verse 10, first of all where the writer says, we have been sanctified, in other words, saved and justified, through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ, listen, once for all. Jesus offered himself on Calvary's cross once for all time and for all people. Hebrews 9.28, so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. And of course, John 19.30, when Jesus had received the sour wine as he's up on the cross, now he said, it is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. He didn't say it's almost finished or it's finished this week. Next week, you'll have to do it all over again. But for this week, you're good now. I mean, I, I don't mean to be flippant. This is a serious topic, okay? Uh, all of this means that the Roman Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic Mass, I should say, is an abomination because it is a constant offering of Christ's body and blood as atonement for sins. Or in other words, that Jesus' offering of himself on Calvary's cross once was insufficient. And he keeps needing to be re-sacrificed over and over again. All right, number six. The sixth clue that we glean from the passage that would help us to understand who or what this woman is who rides this beast. Number six, she has a mystery title. She is called Mystery Babylon the Great. This clue links whoever she is spiritually and in a mysterious way to the, Babel, to the Babylon of Nimrod in Genesis chapters 10 and 11. Now we will look at that in more detail next time, but I just want to throw it out that you're thinking about it, okay? So... This clue links whoever she is spiritually to the Babylon of Nimrod, which is where Babylon began, uh, all the way back in Genesis chapters 10 and 11. Now, number seven, she is not only a harlot, a prostitute, she is the mother of all harlots. In other words, she is the mother of all spiritual harlots. What does that mean? It means that she has given birth, first of all, to spiritual children or offspring that follow her in her spiritual and faithfulness to God, in her idolatry. 
Again, many of these folks believe that they're honoring the true God, but they're being unfaithful to the true God because they are not um, doing, they're not worshiping God the way he has prescribed. Remember, again, this goes all the way back to Cain and Abel. How, and what you don't read in Genesis is how God instructed them on how to approach him, the proper way to approach him. Abel listened, brought to God uh, an offering of blood, animal sacrifice. Cain brought to God the works of his hands. He was a farmer, right? And um, the idea is that God rejected Cain and accepted Abel. Cain was furious. And God said, well, if you do what's right, you'll be accepted too. In other words, if you want to approach me, Cain, you can't do it on your terms. You, you can't come to me any old way you think is right. If you're going to approach a holy and righteous God, the fact that we even can approach him at all is an incredible thing to think about. But if we are going to approach him, we've got to do it on his terms. This is the difference between a true relationship, following what God has said and how to approach him and so on, and religion, where the works of your hands you feel are good enough to get you into God's presence and into heaven. She is not just a harlot, guys. She is the mother of all harlots. Let me, let me just say this, okay? Um, she, just, she just doesn't have children. She is the source or the fountainhead of all false religious systems, starting with the Tower of Babel, which later became Babylon. Understand that. All the false systems of the world can be traced back to Babel, the Tower of Babel. That's where they all started. Now, I believe it goes back even farther than that. I believe we can trace all false religions on the face of the earth all the way back to the Garden of Eden and the lie that Satan told Eve, which we don't have anywhere near the time to get into today, the lie that Satan told Eve in the Garden which became the mother of all lies. What do I mean? All false doctrines sprang from the lie that Satan told Eve in the Garden of Eden, which she embraced. Four things. The two most obvious, um, you know, um, you will not surely die if you eat the forbidden fruit. That's the basis of reincarnation. There is no ultimate death. You just keep coming back, right? Um, the path to Godhood is through enlightenment. In her case, if you eat of this tree, your eyes will be open. And ultimately, the goal was Godhood. You'll become as God. Now, that lie, and there's a little more to it than that, but that lie was introduced into the human race, into the bloodstream of humanity in the Garden of Eden. In the Garden of Eden, you had the beginning, uh, the two, two fountainheads of information that have filled the earth, spiritual information. In the Garden of Eden, you had the truth of God, and you had the lies, the lie of the devil. The truth of God branched out and became Judeo-Christianity. The lie of the devil branched out and became Hinduism. And, and all these other religions that are kind of based on Hinduism. The basic idea, you won't surely die. There is no ultimate death. You just keep coming back till you get it right and you ascend to Godhood. Man's always wanted to be God, Right? It's not enough that we become the offspring of the true and living God, live in his kingdom forever. 
uh, in an e eternal state with a glorified body that never gets old or sick or dies. That's not good enough. Like Lucifer, who spawned the first lie in human history, he didn't want to be second in command. He wanted to be like the Most High. And so the Antichrist, I believe that's going to be his religion. Oh, sure, he's going to hold himself up as the prototype. I'm God. Worship me. But if you worship me, I will teach you what you can do to also ascend to Godhood. This is my conviction. I could be wrong. This is the lie that is going to be promoted and, and preached by the Antichrist when he finally comes, and the false prophet. Because Satan's involved, right? He's the dragon. Then the Antichrist is the world leader. False prophet is his sidekick. I believe, and Paul said it in, in what? 2 Thessalonians 2.11 and Romans chapter 1, verse 25, he talks about the lie. Connects it to the end times. The lie. Definite article in the Greek. Well, the world is full of lies. What is this, the lie you're talking about? Only thing I can think of is the lie that Satan introduced in the Garden of Eden. The very first lie that was ever fed to the human race is going to be the ultimate lie that Satan's going to use to deceive the world in the end. That's me. All right, number eight. The eighth close. She is a major persecutor of true believers. In fact, it says she is drunk with their blood. In other words, she hasn't just tasted their blood. In other words, a little persecution. She is intoxicated by the blood of the saints of God, which means she has slaughtered or martyred millions upon millions of true believers in Jesus Christ over the centuries. And it's kind of died down the last few hundred years it's going to come back in full strength um, in the final years of world history in the tribulation period the false church is going to be used to persecute many believers during the tribulation period in fact john sees so many martyrs standing in heaven he can't even count them revelation 7 and 14 because of the number so days of severe persecution against God's true people are coming back. We'll reach a crescendo under the Antichrist. Number nine. She is associated with a city sitting on seven hills or mountains. Many believe this, that's a reference to the city of Rome, which is built on seven hills. You can go online, Google it. The seven names of the seven hills of Rome, I did. I saw them. They're kind of unpronounceable. Who cares? But you can, you can Google it and find, your, find the seven hills that the city of Rome is built on. Um, number 10. This is the last one. The great city that she's linked to rules over the kings of the earth. In John's day, guys, that was a no-brainer. Rome had conquered the world. Rome ruled over the kings of the earth, and Rome was built in seven hills. The Vatican to this day is a separate nation. You realize that? Yes, within Rome, but a sovereign nation with its own diplomatic embassies in every major nation around the world. And for your information, in case you didn't know this, and this is all a matter of historical record, I'm not making this stuff up or just trying to bash the Catholic Church. It's common knowledge that there is no, org no organization in the world, 
Let me say it again. No organization that's ever existed in the world history that has murdered more true Christian than, Christians than has the Roman Catholic Church. And that's according to Catholic historians like Will Durant and others. In fact, one pope in one afternoon murdered more Christians than all the Roman emperors combined. Most of the history of Europe is the history of the Roman Catholic Church, and in particular, the history of the Pope's struggles for power. They were power hungry. They had their own standing armies. I don't know if you knew that. The Popes had their own standing armies, and because they controlled so many other kings in Europe, they also controlled their armies as well. The Vatican was extremely powerful. Why did all these kings fear the Popes? Because you didn't want to get, be excommunicated from the church. If you didn't do the Pope's bidding, he could excommunicate you and you would go to hell because in Catholic theology, the only way to go to heaven is to be in good standing in the Catholic Church. All this talk about bringing home the separated brethren. All the people that left the Catholic Church and are now kind of you know, evangelicals and Protestants. The Church wants to bring them all back under the umbrella of the Mother Church, right? But that's a ruse. They're not accepting people back to come back under the umbrella of the Catholic Church without them renouncing the faith in you know, Protestantism, evangelicalism, um, to, be a, to be back as a good standing Roman Catholic because salvation is only through the Roman Catholic Church. That's Catholic theology. You can't get to heaven unless you are a Roman Catholic in good standing in the church. We'll wrap it up. The Roman Catholic Church, guys, um, again, has martyred millions who dare to oppose the Pope's authority over their lives. And by the way, if you study the history of the Catholic Church, it's, it's quite a mess. It's been sanitized, and people in the church have made it seem like you had this nice little uh, su succession of popes, you know, from Peter on down to the current pope, right? Vickers of Christ, and so on and so forth. At one time, there were three popes, and they were all excommunicating each other's followers. It was a real mess, okay? But the Roman Catholic Church has martyred millions who dared to oppose the pope's authority over their lives or who dared to speak out against their immoralities and their heresies. Rome, guys, was given the nickname centuries ago the City of Bastards. The city of bastards because more illegitimate children were born to the popes, cardinals, bishops, priests, and nuns more than any other city in the world. It was no secret, it was common knowledge, that there were more prostitutes and mistresses in Rome than in any other city in the world because of all the celibate, quote-unquote, Christian clergy that resided there. Yeah, right, celibate. And when Martin Luther, who, him, who was himself a Catholic monk, when he finally got the chance to visit the holy city, as he called it, everyone called it, Rome, trip of a lifetime, he had always wanted to go to the holy city to see it for himself, the city of God. When he finally got the opportunity and he went to Rome, he was completely disillusioned and flat out disgusted by all the immorality going on among the clergy, including rampant homosexuality. What really incensed him 
was the selling of indulgences that the church had adopted. What's an indulgence? It's where you can basically buy your forgiveness for your sin in advance. Say you wanted to have an affair. And you had this affair, but you didn't want to take a chance of having a heart attack before you could go to the priest, make your confession, and get your sins forgiven. So, the Catholic Church would give the church X amount of dollars and we'll give you an indulgence, which will allow you to indulge yourself in whatever sin you want. And it's forgiveness in advance. Once we give the indulgence, you can have your affair with a clear conscience. Because if you were to die, you're covered. Martin Luther was so furious about that in particular. And when he came back to Germany, he nailed his 95 theses or reforms on the castle church door in Wittenberg and launched the Protestant Reformation. One author put it this way. He said, and I quote, The Protestant Reformation began in Wittenberg, Germany on October 31st, 1517, when Martin Luther, a teacher and a monk, published a document he called Disputation on the Power of Indulgences, or 95 Theses. The document was a series of 95 ideas about Christianity that he invited people to debate with him. These ideas were controversial because they directly contradicted the Roman Catholic Church's teachings, end quote. With regard to this woman in Revelation 17 representing the Roman Catholic Church, I highly recommend Dave Hunt's book, A Woman Rides the Beast. It's a must read. I read the book in its entirety last time I taught Revelation, made a whole bunch of notes, some of that I'm sharing with you uh, tonight. But um, the idea that this woman represents the, the Catholic Church, uh, Hunt goes into this in great detail, Has he's just got an incredible amount of footnotes. Highly researched, the book is. A Woman Rides the Beast. Guys, I personally believe as we close that this harlot called Mystery Babylon is bigger than just the Roman Catholic Church. I believe she is, is, she is called the mother of all harlots on the face of the earth. I believe the final world religion will be a composite of all false religions. But I also believe that the Roman Catholic Church will be instrumental in bringing them all together. In fact, for many years, the Roman Catholic Church has thought of itself as the mother church who will eventually bring all the religions of the world under its umbrella. This is their language. And guys, I believe this will happen right after the true church of Jesus Christ is raptured off the earth. Quickly, 2 Thessalonians 2. Turn to it real quick. I want to read you something that a lot of people misinterpret, okay? I believe misinterpret. Second um, Thessalonians 2, let's look at verses 1 to 4. Paul says, Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, the rapture is in view there, and our gathering together to him, we ask you, not to be so, so soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first. And the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, 
who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. We've talked about that. There's a lot of folks that interpret this statement, verse 3, let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come, which is the day of God's judgment, unless the falling away comes first, and then the man of sin is revealed. Or they say, well, that falling away, that's the rapture. That's the rapture, right? I don't believe it's talking about the rapture directly. Now, hang on. Because the Greek word is apostasia. We get our Greek, we get our word apostasy from that word. It, it's used as a, de, a departing from the faith, from the truth. It's not used of a physical departing from one place to another, okay? I believe that this apostasia, this, this you know, God's judgment won't come. The Antichrist won't be revealed until, until there's first a falling away. I don't believe that's the rapture, but I believe it's tied to the rapture. What do I mean? When the rapture happens, all true believers in the face of the earth are what? Caught up to beat the Lord in the air, right? There is nothing left on the church in the way of, uh, uh, in the way of any kind of Christianity except through the apostate Christian church. That's why there's so much apostasy. There's nothing left after the true church is taken out of here but people who are you know, Catholic, Lutheran, Methodist, Baptist, Presbyterian. A lot of folks go to church that aren't saved. It's a cultural thing with a lot of people. They've grown up in the church. Good people go to church. They network in the church. They're salespeople. They, they get to network. And, you, know, you know how that goes. The falling away is what happens after the rapture when the whole world is led into deep apostasy because that's all that's left are unbelievers masquerading as true believers, right? I'll end with this quote by J. Vernon McGee, and we'll pick it up next week. But McGee said, and I quote, You see, all true believers will have left the world scene at the time of the rapture. This includes all true believers. And I have discovered that there are many true believers in the Roman Catholic Church, in the liberal churches, and even in some very weird religious systems. All genuine believers, regardless of where they have gone to church, will be raptured. This will leave a church on earth that is totally apostate. Rather than being, quote, the bride of Christ, end quote, God calls her a harlot. So on that note, we will leave it. Tonight was mostly introductory. There's a lot going on in chapter 17. You have to lay a good foundation before we actually get into it. So let's pray. Father. We thank you, Lord, that you have given us your word, of course, and the Holy Spirit to live in our hearts to enlighten us to what you're saying. And we pray, Lord, that we are always faithful in the correct interpretation, that we can also make the proper application. So, Lord, we just pray that you will continue to bless these studies in your word, especially as we come to the end of this incredible book, Lord. Give us grace. Um, to properly understand what you're saying and to do what we can to prepare in any way we can for the rapture before uh, you come for us so that we can be a light in this, in this dark world. Father, we thank you. We ask you to keep blessing these studies for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.